this evening I'd like to continue just to reflect on this theme of the engaged mystic. Recently I came across a wonderful quote that said, not everyone feels the call to be a monk or a nun, but everyone has a little bit of the monk or nun within them. Now, I, I think it's probable that very few of you have felt the urge or the inclination to enter a monastery and to don robes and to embrace a, a life so secluded from the world and from relationships and engagements, except perhaps in the most crisis-ridden moments of your life. You may well have felt that. And yet, for those of you who have been around in this practice or this tradition for a while, um, you know that the monastics play a very strong part in this teaching and path and tradition. And really, the part that they play is that they really do carry and, in a way, embody this lineage of tremendous simplicity and commitment and letting go and so many things. And I know when, you know, because our paths cross with the monastics many times, and I know when I meet the monastics, there's something just about their lifestyle and what they're committed to that really does kind of evoke an inner echo. And I, I think, what is that part of the monk or the nun within us? And I feel that it's that kind of voice in our heart, that voice of longing, actually, that brings us to retreats. I think the monk or the nun within us is that part of us that really leads us to endeavor to live a life of integrity and mindfulness. It's sometimes that quiet inner voice that deeply longs for love, for calmness, for peace. And the monk or the nun within us is that part of us that so deeply values kindness and compassion and equanimity and longs for healing and freedom, both inwardly and outwardly, to find a way truly to touch our world and heal our world with understanding and ethics. And then the monk or the nun within us, in truth, coexists also with our intention to live our life in this world in a conscious way, the part of us that wants to contribute to the healing of our planet, to to have ethical relationships and meaningful lives and, and integrity and heartfelt sincerity and commitment. I think the invitation of our path as lay people is really to keep the dialogue going between the monk and the nun within us and our lives of engagement. Because both both of these 
our life in the world and our inner life. Both of these are part of the fabric of awakening and understanding. And both of them are part of the fabric of really understanding what it actually does mean to be an engaged mystic. Now this is no easy journey, and we all know. All of us know, goodness me, that it's really hard enough to sit with ourselves on a cushion. You know, hard enough to walk in mindfulness and silence just to be present with ourselves for more than five minutes at a time. It's hard enough, we all know, to learn how to calm our our hearts and minds. It doesn't look that hard, but it is. You know, my, my son, when he was uh, a few years ago, he, he, he took a picture with his camera of my daily schedule on retreat. Then he emailed it to all his friends. <laughs> and, and it's become a kind of standing joke, like, look at my mom's work day. You know, she sits. Oh, look, she's walking. Oh, then she sits again. You know. Oh, a little more walking. Lunch, you know. Goodness me, there she is sitting again, you know. And it's kind of a standing joke in their community. Like, this is a presented as being the sort of idyllic livelihood method, you know. You sit and walk. And, you know, when, when they do joke with me about it, I, I suggest that they try it. Just give it a go for one day and still see how, what, a, what a cakewalk it is. But we know it is a challenge to do that. But it's also equally challenging to, to sustain our intentions, to be calm and mindful in this world, a world that doesn't always feel to respect and to support awareness and integrity and kindness. But I think this is the nature of the path. And the challenge of it is as, was as true 2,600 years ago as it is today. And it's as hard, it's just as hard in a monastery in many ways as it is in the world. You know, all, those, all that time ago, people used to come to the Buddha in distress, speaking about how difficult it really was to live with integrity and dignity and kindness, how difficult and hard it was at times to be with their turbulent hearts and minds. You know, we can imagine, of course, that it must be so much easier in a monastery except if you've ever been in one. <laughs> and then, you know, you're taking your mind with you wherever you go. Hmm? You're taking your heart with you wherever you go. And, you know, I've spent, we've both spent times in monasteries, you know, and, and I'm pretty sure that if you asked a monk or a nun to keep a diary of their day, you know, they've got a lot happening. You know, out in the alms round, caring for the monastery, you know, cleaning up looking after the communities, practicing. It's really no wonder, actually, they have to get up at 3 or 4 in the morning just to get it all in. The invitation of the Buddha, 
the teaching through all time is to understand what it means to live a noble life, to cultivate a noble heart. And the Buddha was very clear about, about describing and defining a noble life by, by the commitment that is brought to ethics and serenity and calm and mindfulness and wisdom and freedom. And that, committee, that commitment is not easy in any circumstance or lifestyle. You know, and the Buddha called it swimming against the tide. And I, I often think this is really an apt description because we see how much, and even as it was talked about today, how much on a daily level we often feel to be swimming against the tide of our own internal habits. You know, never mind our external ones. Our, in, our own internal habits of scatteredness or aversion or anxiety or agitation. But I think, too, we're often swimming against the tide of some of the cultural and social values that we meet every day in our lives. I mean, you don't turn on the television very often and hear the message, this is a good day to let go. (laughs) This is a good day to be compassionate. This is a good day to be equanimous. You don't pick up a magazine and see that. In fact, much of the communication that really is bombarding our sensors is something very different. You know, the value that is given to becoming someone special, the weight that is given to success and and failure, the values of sometimes given to accumulating and defining ourselves by what we do or by what we produce. Sometimes the, the busyness that can take over our lives that can so disconnect us from nature and the very real crises in our environment. It's sometimes said that the road to enlightenment is not paved. <laughs> and any of you who've been in this practice for a while, you know that's true. This is not paved. It's a bumpy road. But the path of nobility or a noble life is not just about a kind of destination or result. I think nobility (coughs) in many ways is truly born of our willingness to embrace the rockiness of the road, to embrace it all. And to really sense that if if we really want peace, we need to know what it means to practice peace and to live peace. If we want kindness, we need to know what it means to practice and to nurture kindness. If we find ourselves often lost in confusion, there is some way that we're actually practicing confusion. If ill will lives on in our lives in some way, often quite quite unintentionally, we're feeding ill will. It is the practice of calm and mindfulness in truth that leads to the stability of calm and mindfulness. 
And in many ways, it's a practice of agitation that leads to sustained agitation. I feel it's very important to acknowledge that we're part of a generation of practitioners in the West in this tradition who are really endeavoring to understand what it means to be an engaged mystic, what it means to honor the monk or the nun within us, that commitment to peace and kindness and freedom, and yet to live fully engaged as a conscious participant in the world. You know, if you go to Asia and much of Asia, and and there are areas that are are different, Uh, you know, there are Burma is something of an exception, there are parts of Taiwan that are something of an exception. But in much of Asia, in Buddhist traditions, the path of lay people is primarily one of dana, generosity, of practicing the precepts and of devotion. Now, these are fine and wholesome paths, and I certainly don't want to put them down in any way. And yet the truth is that in much of Asia, the meditative or the mystical or the the path of liberation is really seen to be the domain and the territory of the monastics. And this is really one of the very radical shifts that has actually happened in Western practice. That, you know, people are really challenging that divide, really wanting to to live in the world in such a clear way, and yet really nurturing that possibility of freedom of heart within themselves, and really following the paths to that freedom. You know, the thousands of people who come through here on retreat, not only here, but as Naraya mentioned, in so many different practice centers, practicing, certainly learning to know about and and reclaim and, and really embody integrity and kindness, but really nurturing that spark of possibility of real, genuine inner freedom. But when we've made this shift in the West as lay people, it's just to acknowledge it it doesn't seem like there's an obvious model or an obvious roadmap to follow. You know, it's not like there's generations of people who've gone before in this tradition, in this culture, you know, who are here all telling us how to do it. And although it doesn't seem like there's any obvious roadmap to follow, in fact, there is. And it's called the Noble Eightfold Path. It's called the the Noble Eightfold Path, the path that leads to the healing of suffering and the path that leads to a noble life. And in truth, the Noble Eightfold Path is a path and a teaching that embraces every single aspect of our life including the aspects that many of you brought up from your groups today, the difficulties of really navigating our way through relationships that can often feel so thorny or so laden with habit. The Noble Eightfold Path of developing wise understanding, developing wise intention, wise speech, wise action, wise livelihood, the paths are developing wise effort and mindfulness and concentration. 
And I think really to explore and to understand this Eightfold Path deeply is to understand that truly this teaching of peace and freedom is meant to touch every dimension of our life. And it's meant to embrace all circumstances, inwardly and outwardly. Now the links in the Eightfold Path, some of them relate to inner development, some of them relate to how we embody ourselves in this world. The Eightfold Path doesn't just speak about transforming our hearts and minds, but the Eightfold Path really speaks about changing the shape of our lives and the shape of our world. It's a path that addresses not only what we do on a cushion, but how we live our, our lives moment to moment, and the encouragement to live our lives as if everything matters, and everything is worthy of our attention. In a way, you know, that is the definition of mindfulness. Everything matters, and everything is worthy of our attention. You know, there sometimes it's said that if you want to change the life of a child, you need to change your own heart. I think it could equally be said that if we want to change the shape of our world, we begin by transforming our own hearts. In answer to the timeless dilemmas of anguish, and disconnection and fear and incompleteness, the Buddha didn't actually endlessly prescribe to people that they should just sit more. That's not what he said. In fact, in Ajahn Chah, who's a great forest teacher, we had a monk who came to him complaining about not getting anywhere, not making enough progress, and he didn't have enough time to sit enough. And Ajahn Chah's answer to him was, he said, I've seen chickens who do nothing but sit, and I've never met an enlightened chicken. <laughs> the Buddha said, in the face of these timeless dilemmas of the human heart, the Buddha's encouragement was to investigate in every moment and in every circumstance what it is that leads to suffering and what it is that leads to the end of suffering. This was the heart of his teaching. And to acknowledge that our cushions, or our benches, really don't possess any intrinsic or magical power to transform us. That whatever is born of the, our secluded times in meditation in terms of insight, in terms of calm, in terms of kindness, that what is ever is born of our secluded times in practice is not born of time or posture. It's born of our intention and our willingness to see more deeply and to cultivate everything that is healing and liberating, and also to learn to refrain equally important, from everything that mires us in confusion and anxiety and hopelessness. And it is those intentions that really give birth to great calm 
great kindness and freedom. Buddha often said that there are three steps to insight. One is to hear the teaching and to find a resonance with it, to find an intellectual agreement with it. This is very important. You know, if we sat up here and told you impermanence is not true, you know, that lots of things are permanent. You know, if we told you, sat up here and told you, you know, the path to liberation is mortification. You know, let's get out our beds of nails and, you know, our whips and whatever. If we sat up here and told you that all suffering is always somebody else's fault, you know, we probably would sit here and think, these people are nuts. I mean, you might think that anyway, but, but you even more think, these people are really nuts. It's not true. So we need to have that kind of resonance. We need to have that intellectual agreement. It's a spark. It's often the teaching is a spark that begins the next step of insight, which is that process of inner investigation and exploration, to really check it out in our own experience, to really check it out in a very embodied, a very felt sense. Is it true that letting go brings more spaciousness and happiness? Is it true that practicing kindness brings more peace into our lives? Is it true that, that the path to happiness is sometimes letting go of our arguments with the world? To really check this out in our own experience. What is it that really brings healing? And the third step of insight, and perhaps this is the most challenging, all the steps of insight are equally important, but the third step of insight, perhaps the most challenging for all of us, is embodiment. To really explore what it means to live in the light of what we understand to be true. To live in the light of our own insight. To really know how to embody that wisdom in all moments and circumstances of our lives. I think probably one of the biggest frustrations many people experience in practice is that they, 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 the insight is there, and yet the habit is stronger. You know, so it, it's almost feel, sometimes awareness almost feels like a curse, you know, because we know what leads to suffering. And hey, there we are again, you know, falling in that same hole. But rather than being judgmental about that, I think it's so important to know, just acknowledge it doesn't mean an absence of insight. Huh? It means this real cultivation, embodiment of that insight is a path in itself. And it's really a path sometimes just of finding the willingness to meet the habits of our minds, the habits of suffering, with kindness, with mindfulness with care, with attention, rather than turning insight into some new inner judge or critic, you know, that reinforces a sense of hopelessness or, 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 or despair. Just imagine something. If you elected to go into a monastery and live in a monastic life, now, coming into a retreat, I have to tell you, is just a little glimpse of that, a tiny little glimpse of that. 
But, you know, coming into a retreat, you let go of a lot. You know, your capacity to control things, you know, your, your entertainment selection is pretty limited. <laughs> you know, you, know you have a little glimpse. You know, it's a lot simpler, it's a lot quieter, you have a lot more time just being with yourself. What are we really asked to learn? What would we be asked to learn if we elected to go into a monastery? So the learning that would make it not only just something tolerable, like we don't want to make retreat just tolerable, but as an inclinement in which we would really deepen in understanding and spaciousness and calm. Well, you know, we've done this, and I know going into a monastery, I was asked to learn a lot of things. I found it no easy path myself. We would probably be asked to learn and to cultivate a tremendous depth of patience, to learn to be with what is, rather than leaning forward into the next moment or the next event. I mean, you have a glimpse of that here. There's not many events. You spend your day leaning forward. You really see how off balance you get. If we were to go into a monastery tomorrow, we would probably all be asked to learn a tremendous amount of generosity and tolerance. You wouldn't be able to divorce yourself from your fellow monastics, just like you can't divorce yourself from your fellow yogis here. And that no matter how difficult or how irritating you found themselves to be, you would know that to be stuck in judgment and argument doubles the difficulty. We would probably be asked to let go of our relentless desire to control and on our ongoing argument with how things should be, to find kindness rather than aversion, compassion rather than harshness, to find calmness and uprightness rather than anxiety and agitation, and the willingness to be content with little and to find joy in simplicity. Life in a monastery would ask us for a million moments of letting go in a single day. And just to dispel any illusions, you know, when a person takes robes, becomes a monk or a nun, it's not the robes that make them a monk or a nun. It's the training. And many monastics will tell you that that is the beginning of their training to understand what it means to be a monk or a nun. Now suppose we reverse that scenario <coughs> and we invited a monk or a nun to come into our home and take our place for a year, go to our job, pay our bills, raise our kids, learn, <clears throat> learn how to be with aging parents, deal with contentious neighbors, sit in traffic jams. How would you advise that monk or nun? What would you say to them, this is what's going to really make this a climate of learning and deepening 
rather than something that just has to be born or is tolerable or coped with? What would you advise them? If they were to do that, your life really well, rather than be overwhelmed. You know what? I think the list would look pretty similar. Patience, generosity, kindness, contentment with little, not arguing with the way things are, being willingness to meet the moment as it is. I think in this life, in this path, we're all reading from the same script. One of the central teachings of the Buddha is that nothing exists in isolation. Nothing exists independently, that all things are interwoven and interconnectedness, interconnected. We can't cultivate awareness and compassion in isolation. We actually cultivate the conditions in our own hearts and minds and lives that allow calmness and peace and compassion to come into being. In a meditative life, we cultivate the conditions that allow insight and, and understanding to emerge. It's also true that agitation and aversion and fear also don't exist independent or in isolation. They also arise from the conditions that are conducive to their arising. It's like Ruth Dennison, one of our elders here, once said, you know, if you want a mango tree, you don't plant an apple seed. <laughs> so what are the conditions, the ground of an awakened life, an awakened heart? I think it's very important for us to consider. The first of these is a very profound commitment to integrity, the ethics we were speaking about last night. You know, one of the ways that the Buddha was very radical in his time is that he was the first teacher in his time to make a direct link between ethics, calm, collected mind, and wisdom. Before him, there really wasn't a kind of code of ethics or any relationship made between those three. Now, of course, we tend to think that ethics is easy. You know, I mean, none of a, I mean we're here, we're not in prison, right? So we think, you know, well, we're not murderers, you know, no, we're not car thieves, you know, we're not kind of, you know, fraudsters. But I think it's actually ethics is one of the great ongoing challenges and practices of our time. I think the practice of integrity <coughs> is truly a wisdom practice. And a colleague of mine said recently that, that if the practice of the ethical guidelines doesn't make you uncomfortable, you haven't understood them properly. Because it's really not just behavioral. It's really, really more importantly, what goes on in our own minds and hearts. I mean, we know this, you know. We can greet someone on the street, you know, with a kind of smile on our face and inwardly, you know, have an onslaught of judgment and condemnation. It's not just about not acting out ill will. It's being free from ill will. To cultivate non-harming truthfulness, honesty, clarity, sexual integrity. 
so deeply needed in our world. You know, not only for our own well-being, but for the well-being of our world, our planet. You know, I think many times in my life, people, you know, because I've had raised two children, and, you know, I think people used to have this romantic idea of my kids hanging out on zafus in diapers. You know, and <coughs> many people would ask me, you know, like, how much do your kids meditate? You know, they're three years old, four years old. And, you know, as a parent, I never really felt it was important to teach my children to meditate. But what I really felt was so important was to teach them the understanding of ethics. And an understanding of ethics that is really really an understanding of interconnectedness. And that somehow if they could do that and really cultivate that, they would grow up to be people who would know about kindness, whose area of concern would be greater than just themselves. I think it is a challenge of and a, a practice and a path for all of us. And I, I think this, this real investigation of what integrity means is not an invitation to judge ourselves for the moments that we stumble, but to really renew the commitment, not only to change our own hearts, but to change our way of being in this world, to, to change the courses of our relationships. You know, it's why the Buddha put ethics as being the kind of firm ground of all monastic communities because they're there to foster relationships of trust and fearlessness. Uh, The second condition, I think, of an awakened life is the willingness to embrace simplicity amidst the inevitable complexities of many of our lives. Amidst the inevitable complexities of our lives. One of the greatest complaints and difficulties that I hear from people is a complaint about busyness. You know, I'm so busy. How do I fit my practice into my schedule? As if our practice is just about what we do on a cushion. But busyness to me doesn't describe a way of life, it describes a way, a state of mind that may, in fact, be optional. You know, sometimes people come on retreat, and, you know, the first day they tell me about how they're suffering from busyness, and then proceed to get really busy on a retreat. You know, projects to do, you know, that sense of urgency, that sense of self-improvement, you know, how do I get rid of this, how do I get rid of that, you know, uh, you know how do I fix the whole of IMS, you know. It, it's, uh, they get busy right away. It's like a state of mind. And I think sometimes it's almost like an illness. You know, recently I was talking with a yogi, and he said that he worked in the music business. And he said they have a term for it in their, in their office. It's called tired and wired. Tired and wired. Exhausted not only by life, but, but, but by the thousands of thoughts we have about our life. And wired the agitation that is often born from being having an overextended and over overfull mind. Now simplicity, I would suggest, the nurturing of it, the love of it, the care of it, really speaks to the monk or the nun within us. 
I think it's a practice and a training, and perhaps one of the most important practices we're asked to embrace. A simplicity doesn't mean, you know, the encouragement to quit your job and get a divorce and sell your house. You know, it, it is much more a, a kind of an inner journey of investigation. And it's an investigation of what I think Thomas Merton referred to as this contemporary form of violence, of saying yes to too many things, being answerable to too many demands, trying to meet too many expectations, trying to be something for everything and everyone. And sometimes I think simplicity means a kind of wisdom of saying no at times. But more deeply for me, I think simplicity has something to do with our willingness to look honestly and clearly at some of the forces of discontent in our own hearts. Because it, sometimes we're choosing complexity. You know, we want our lives, our minds to be occupied in every moment of our day as if we feel incomplete, as if we're not doing, if we're not doing. You know, the Buddha put it so simply that unquenchable craving is the cause of suffering and proliferation, perpetuates disconnection, perpetuates anxiety, and unquenchable craving is the cause of an unawakened life. Now, we've heard, many of you have heard that a thousand times that to learn how to calm down that unquenchable thirst, craving, is a direct cause of an awakened life. But you know, as lay people living in this world who hold in our hands, in a way, the shape of the future in our present, not only our own future, our own particular life, but really the shape of our world, the shape of our planet, holding that in our hands, I think we really, this is a time when we are really looking at what does simplicity mean for all of us. It's a time when we feel a lot more open to, you know, maybe letting go really is an act of kindness for ourselves and our world. Maybe this is a time when more than any other time we've ever been aware of where we see actually the ethical urgency of learning to be content with little. You know, learning to simplicity, uh, learning to let go of unquenchable thirst does not mean letting go of all the very wholesome aspirations and desires that are present in our life. You know, the very wholesome aspirations and desires for love and peace and connectedness and care and to be able to live a meaningful life, to be able to care for the people we love. It doesn't mean letting go of that. But those wholesome desires have a chance of success. Unquenchable thirst rooted in discontent has no chance of success. That no matter what we have, what we get, what we become, somehow it feels like never enough. There's something about learning to love simplicity. You know, Ajahn Suchita, a, a teacher meeting a couple of years ago here, you know, we, we were doing one of these check-ins and people from different centers were going around talking about all the wonderful, very wonderful projects and things they were creating and undertaking in their centers. You know, and Ajahn Suchito, he says, you know, well, it came to his turn. <laughs> he said, well, you know, we really don't do very much. That's kind of our job description as monks and nuns, 
is to not do very much, but yet they do. And that's a kind of koan, I think, for all of us. It's really how to live this life where actually a lot is growing, a lot is being, being aspired to and brought into being, and yet not to have this inner pressure of I'm doing so much. I'm doing so much. You know, we really see it here, you know, like, like Narayan was talking about both the virtues and the downsides of technology last night. You know, I sometimes call cell phones the sixth hindrance factor. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and it's certainly not that they don't have practical and valid uses. You know, I have one that lives in the, in the you know, the glove compartment of my car. That is where it lives. Um, you know, I mean, they do have a very practical nature, but notice how even things that really have a very practical nature become sort of magnets for underlying tendencies. You know, that something that started out as a very practical nature can, can if the forces of discontent are behind it, you know, the fear that I'm going to become invisible or disappear unless I'm endlessly available 24 hours a day, you know, can always be called on. Is it true? You know, does actually being endlessly hooked in make us feel any less lonely? Does it actually make us feel more connected? I don't think for a lot of people it does. You know, when the Buddha talked about meditation, he would usually begin with these instructions to disentangle from the world and establish yourself in mindfulness and solitude. He didn't say disconnect from the world. He didn't say push the world away. He said disentangle from the world and really treasure the, the secluded mind, the mind that is not always chasing or pursuing or avoiding, the mind that's not always hooked. You know, can we be comfortable having this, content with little? You know, it's not easy in our society. We hear that's actually a sign of failure and inadequacy. And it's not just, you know, contentment is not just about the things we have. For me, it's much more about events and experiences. You notice that we become easily intensity addicts. In fact, the more asleep we are inwardly, the more intensity do we need to feel awake. You know, the more numb we are inwardly, the more intensity do we need to feel alive. And this, you know, we can counter that trend. You know, you, you notice sometimes, you know, the moment you meet someone you haven't seen for a while, you know, it's not enough just to be there sometimes. We've got to tell them everything that's happened to us in the last 10 years, you know, every event. It's, it's not okay to say, you know, like nothing much has happened. I haven't been doing very much. You know, Naomi, she had nigh in part of just part of a poem I love. She says, when someone recognizes you in a grocery store, nod briefly and turn into a cabbage. <laughs> when someone you haven't seen in 10 years appears at the door, don't start singing them all your new songs. You'll never catch up. Walk around like a leaf, knowing you could tumble any second, then decide what to do with your time. And decide what to do with your time. The Buddha once said, you know, I know of no one thing that can cause greater harm than an untrained mind. 
He says, I know of no one thing that can be of greater benefit than a well-trained mind. Because it is not sometimes the world that exhausts us. It's our thoughts about the world. And what does a well-trained mind look like? It's a mind that's not leaning into the future with all its anxieties and imaginings and rehearsals. And so it's calming anxiety. The well-trained mind is a mind that's not always lingering in the past in what's gone by with guilt and regret. The well-trained mind is a mind that's not always lost in preoccupations and obsessions in the present. The Buddha called this a one fortunate attachment. It's fortunate because it teaches us to way, the way again and again to lay down the burden of so much of the proliferation that exhausts us and disconnects us from where we are right here and right now. And that's the secluded mind. That is a secluded mind. The mind that's not lost in thoughts about past or future or obsessions in the present. That is a secluded mind. Perhaps the greatest condition for an awakened life, maybe it's not the greatest, these are all important, but one of the import, really one important ones is the, the condition of commitment. What we are committed to is what we give time and attention and energy to. And we know that in all areas of our lives, if we want to raise a child, if we want to learn to play a musical instrument, if you want to study, if you want a relationship that's healthy, if you want to practice, to bring any of that to fruition requires our commitment. And commitment is not something we make just once. You know, the commitment to peace, the commitment to kindness, the commitment to simplicity, it's not something in my experience that we do just once. It's a daily, a moment-to-moment -moment commitment in through which we embody understanding. But that's also its beauty, because whenever we get lost, we can renew that commitment. And it grows and nurtures in the light of that renewal. And we start to understand, we start to explore this path of what it means to be an engaged mystic. Not somewhere else, but really right where we are right now. We have just a moment quietly together.
for the time for a walking period before our last group sit, um, if we could come back, not at. Uh Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.